This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Episode 30, A New Pacific. The America-Japan War, 1941-1945, brought the Pacific to fresh American attention, as did the Chinese Civil War and Communist triumph in 1949. For Americans, China exercised a strong, sentimental attraction due in major part to the heavy influence of Christian missionaries. With revolution, Americans regarded China as lost. Red China it became for us, with all the negative connotations attached. The far Pacific had long lay in the American consciousness. We'd been thinking about Asia even before first setting foot on Asian shores. In the 18th century, the Anglo-Irish bishop and philosopher George Berkeley wrote a verse much quoted long thereafter and popular in early America. Berkeley wrote, Westward the course of empire takes its way, the first four acts already passed, the fifth shall close the drama with the day, time's noblest offspring is the last. In other words, the tides of history bring inevitable change, except that they stop somehow at the very end with an American supremacy. Among 19th century pundits, there was much talk about the rhythms of what would come to be called geopolitical change, geopolitics being a new word borrowed from the Germans. Historians and others had long observed a shift of the dynamic center of global affairs from the Mediterranean to the North Atlantic. Pundits then began to ask, would the Pacific be next? Others were thinking along the same lines. Alexander Herzen, Russian refugee from Tsarist oppression, in 1858 proclaimed the Pacific to be the Mediterranean of the future. Herzen was writing when Russia territorially still straddled both sides of the Pacific, the only power ever to do so until Japan briefly occupied one of the Aleutian Islands in World War II. Lincoln's Secretary of State William Henry Seward, best known for the Alaska Purchase, at the same time as Herzen was saying, the Pacific is the theater of events in the great hereafter. Karl Marx, in similar vein, shortly thereafter declared, the Pacific Ocean will play the same role as at present does the Atlantic, and the Atlantic Ocean will sink to the level of a great lake such as the Mediterranean is today. Around 40 years thereafter, President Theodore Roosevelt in 1903 took up the cry, the Atlantic era is now at the height of its development and must soon exhaust the resources at its command. The Pacific era 
destined to be the greatest of all, is just at its dawn. Roosevelt took comfort from observing our interests in the Pacific are just as great as our interests in the Atlantic. The Battle of Manila Bay in 1898 and the Panama Canal opened in 1914 reinforced the idea of the U.S. as now a two-ocean nation. World War II made the Pacific an arena, as we have seen. Post-war made the Pacific an avenue, a new center of commerce and even culture, which was a surprise to many. Eurocentrism was strong in America, even among the intellectual community. As late as the 1950s, Asian studies was regarded as a kind of exotic ghetto, a field of learning only for eccentrics, of whom, by the way, I was one. Even academics are reluctant to recognize change. They often cling to the comfort of conventional wisdoms. The economic benchmark of maritime change was in the early 1980s when trade flows across the North Pacific exceeded those across the North Atlantic. Atlantic centrality was indeed gone. The Economist on July 21, 1984, would point out, Pundits have been forecasting the dawn of the Pacific Age for so long that most people have turned over and gone back to sleep. You and I know that for Pacific Asia, this was a matter of re-emergence, not emergence, resurgence, not rise. Earlier, as you will recall, Pacific Asians were important regional oceanic actors. Today, they are moving on a far wider scale than when we first looked at the region in the 15th century. Zheng He and his Ming fleets were a mere harbinger. Pacific Asia, notably China, but also Japan and Korea, are already far more pervasive and persistent in their oceanic presence than ever before. They are not simply regional, but global. That China, for instance, is a new player in the global maritime world is a revolutionary phenomenon for the Middle Kingdom. Hillary Clinton in November 2011 remarked that the Asia-Pacific has become the key driver of international politics. The U.S., she said, must lock in an increased investment there. This movement of maritime East Asia from the periphery of an Atlantic-based world economy to the center of the new Pacific-based world economy is the greatest event in the oceanic history of the 20th century. The Pacific is now, as you well know, the center of intercontinental trade flows, representing a massive convergence of talent, resources, goods, technology, information, and capital. We've seen the rise of Tokyo and more recently Shanghai to rival New York and London, with Singapore and Hong Kong in the second tier, perhaps. But two 
of the world's three largest container ports, recently surpassed by Shanghai, all three being Chinese cities. The rise of Tokyo suggests the important part that Japan has played in a shift to the Pacific. Join us next time to explore the Japanese experience in episode 31, Japan in the New Pacific. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg. Recording by 1623 Studios, Gloucester, Massachusetts. Production and distribution by Albert Buichade-Ferret. Goodbye until next time. <laughs>